Hi, I'm Dylan and I was raised white. But when I was 18, I found out I'm actually mixed race and no one was more shocked than me. Or maybe I was the only one who was shocked. I don't know. But I do know that racism is alive and well, and this is something I've experienced throughout my adult life from both sides. White people think I'm not white enough, and black people think I'm not black enough. I just can't win. Anyway, since finding out about my background, I've spent a lot of time figuring out who I am and what it means to be a person of color. I was just someone who thought he was nicely tanned or a bit exotic. How am I supposed to fully embrace my blackness, having never experienced that culture or upbringing? Am I a fraud? How do I properly acknowledge this side of me? Well, by embracing who I am and learning the history of the men and women who came before me. But so much of this past has been whitewashed and erased from the books, so there's a lot I have yet to learn. Now I know y'all also need to learn some history and facts in light of what is happening in the world, and this is not the time for some white person to educate you, so I invite you to learn along with me, and hopefully that will be a little bit less awkward. Each week, I'll tackle a topic, an event, a documentary, a person, so you can get some insight on the history of slavery, emancipation, confederacy, and this whole fight that has been happening for over 400 years. Pull up a chair, put your feet up, learn about racism with and from someone who was never Black enough. Episode 10, Teach Us All. All right, kids, here we go. The things that people said were shocking. The things that they did, the threats that they made were all terrifying. I was glad I had on those sunglasses. At least some people would, would not see me crying. Our schools are more segregated now than they were, you know, in, this, in the late 70s and 80s. That is so backward from the trajectory of our country. It's simply par for the course. See, I was born in 1941, and I saw the craziness around me then. It's the same craziness I see around me now. Carry me home when the light in my eyes does fade. In my world, not too much has changed. People didn't dismantle Brown versus the Board of Education. People moved their children. People voted with their feet. I've spent enough time in the hallways and classrooms of segregated schools to see the way that it just crushes the opportunities of these kids. They know that there are other schools with white kids. They know that those schools tend to have better things than they have. I know kids in my class that got arrested that summer before they even got to high school. They never had that teacher that really cared. Now I must first say that this documentary starts out with the most stunning piece of music called Carry Me Home by the Sweetlings. You've heard a little bit of it in the intro and I'm gonna need you to give that a download and be inspired. Now, Teach Us All is a documentary focusing on hyper-segregated schools around the country, schools where at least 75% of students are the same race. These schools, comprised mostly of underprivileged children, receive less funds and less resources than other schools, which only fuels the suppression of minorities in America while continuing to give a head start to middle and upper class white people. The director, Sonia Lohman, said in an interview with CBS, What you see in these segregated schools is they tend to get far fewer resources and, very importantly, less experienced teachers. Lohman once wrote about school systems saying that, this is where we learn who we are in the world, how to relate to others, and the value that society places on us. 
Teach Us All is thus a story for all Americans, for our melting pot of people from diverse backgrounds who really don't know each other because of the ways in which we arrange our neighborhoods and schools. And this is an answer to the civil rights movement, generations later with still so far to go. The film acknowledges how, as one man says, the United States systematically and deliberately spends less money to educate poor children than affluent children. Because in some areas, they actually spend more money punishing and putting away young people than they do investing in their education. For instance, Los Angeles spends, on average, $233,600 a year to incarcerate a juvenile and only $9,000 a year to educate a student. Early on, we're introduced to a black high school student named Bradley Poindexter. He talks us through his life and his neighborhood, highlighting how the teachers never really care about him or kids like him, how this lack of care allows minority and poor students to slip through the cracks. In 2008, his brother died, and Bradley says, he died with a part-time job at Taco Bell. I don't want to end up like that. He continues by saying, Growing up in the neighborhood that I grew up in, it wasn't really about opportunities. It was either you could be a sports player or a dope dealer, or you end up dead or incarcerated. So you got like four options. Because my parents worked a lot. All the neighborhood kids would come to my house, you know. It wasn't really a safe environment when you got drug dealers and everybody else around your house. So I mean, in order to stay safe, they came to my house. Nobody had guidance. The film shows case studies in Little Rock, Arkansas, New York City, and Los Angeles, where we get further insight into some of these hyper-segregated schools, like how there's a massive achievement gap between poorer kids and more affluent kids. Like, did you ever know that a state can provide hundreds of millions of dollars for public school systems, but they can also allocate more funding into white schools instead of dispensing it equally or giving more to poorer schools who need the resources more? Because yeah, that happens. You've heard of Betsy DeVos, right? Anyways, let's talk about where this all began. In 1957 Arkansas, nine black students were enrolled in Little Rock Central High School in an effort to integrate schools. But what happened subsequently would go down in history and end up becoming a fight for equal education, one that is still being fought today. In a previous episode of mine, I mentioned Dorothy Counts, a black student who was followed and harassed by a white mob while she tried to go to her newly segregated school. This is a similar story because Caucasian hatred knows no boundaries, even in present-day America. You see, in 1954, the Supreme Court issued the Brown v. Board of Education case that was linked to the 14th Amendment. That's the one that grants citizenship to all persons born in the USA. This case declared that all laws supporting segregated school systems was unconstitutional, and it required all schools across the country to desegregate. This is when the NAACP tried registering black students into all-white schools in cities all across the South. Then, in 1955, the court required public schools to desegregate with all deliberate speed, but they didn't. So instead, white people moved to the suburbs. They sued. They established Christian schools, and they formed white citizens' councils. Have you ever heard of a white citizens' council? No? Well, let me tell you. They were local groups comprised of middle and upper class white people, and they were basically like a sophisticated version of the KKK. They used violence and intimidation tactics in order to oppose civil rights. They also attempted to socially and economically oppress black people. 
Martin Luther King even faced attacks from these people, and he was targeted by them throughout his career. So the school in Little Rock ultimately agreed to comply, and they created a plan to slowly integrate the school, a plan that was implemented in the fall of 1957. Nine black students were enrolled to attend Little Rock Central High, chosen based on their grades and attendance. The Little Rock Nine, comprised of Melba Patillo Beals, Minnie Jean Brown, Elizabeth Eckford, Ernest Green, Gloria Ray Karlmark, Carlotta Walls Lanier, Thelma Mothershed, Terrence Roberts, and Jefferson Thomas. Now, initially, the Arkansas National Guard was brought in to, quote-unquote, preserve the peace. However, the state governor ordered them to prevent the black students from entering the school, claiming there was imminent danger of tumult, riot, and breach of peace. Ultimately, two and a half weeks later, President Eisenhower issued an executive order which federalized the state's National Guard and required them to support and protect the African-American students. In 1958, Ernest Green became the first African-American to graduate from Central High School, but that didn't mean it would be smooth sailing for the rest of them. See, Little Rock subsequently entered what is often called the Lost Year, because in 1958, Little Rock decided, by voting 19,470 against 7,561, to keep its public high schools closed rather than desegregate them. Then the private schools stepped up to the plate. While using tax money and public funds, they opened their doors to white students during this time, but there was no such offering for black students, 50% of whom received no education at all that whole year. Many of them had to get jobs or even join the military, and some of them never returned to school. So let's just pause here. Do you remember those folks that think racism and oppression doesn't exist? They say they don't see color and that we're all equal, that there is no such thing as white privilege. Well, this is just one of the countless examples nationwide that blows those claims to pieces. So imagine you are from Little Rock, Arkansas, and you are white. Your white grandparents, during the last year, transferred to one of the city's private schools and continued their education. They graduated, they got a good job, they were approved for a mortgage, they bought a house, and they had a family that resulted in your parents and ultimately you. That privilege, being education and opportunity, is inherited by you because of your skin. You get that, right? Now what about your black classmate Tyrone? Maybe he lives in a poor area of Little Rock, and his grandparents during the last year did not get an education at all. Maybe his grandmother had to start working piddly jobs to make ends meet and to help out the family. Maybe she never got to finish high school whatsoever. Maybe his grandfather went off to war and never finished his education either. I bet they weren't afforded the same career paths as you and your white family. And this is something that trickles down through the decades and generations, which then turns into Tyrone not receiving access to adequate education and necessary resources. So for 60 years, his family has been fighting just to pay their bills and to be treated equal to you and your white family. But you know what? The system just isn't set up for them to succeed. So don't tell me we're all equal. Stop convincing yourself that your white family had the same opportunities as Tyrone. Stop convincing yourself that your white family had the same opportunities as Tyrone because they didn't, and because you had access to a better education and you should be smarter than that. So a year later, public schools reopened, but only two of the Little Rock Nine returned to Central High School. 
While integration efforts were not wholly successful, as made clear in the film, there are many other layers that just really exacerbate the problem, like finding suitable teachers. It's hard to find really qualified teachers to teach children that are difficult to teach. So you have underqualified teachers plus underserved schools and you expect the kids to do well. They say we're a bad apple and you make us a bad apple by kicking us out. And then we meet 27-year-old Baseline Academy principal Jonathan Crossley, who's basically an education savior and the future father of the Millennium winner. I want to have children one day, and I want my children to go to a school that's racially diverse, that's socioeconomically diverse, that's categorically high achieving. And I'm looking around Arkansas, and I'm not seeing a good example. So guess what that means? I better provide one. This is a man who realizes the importance of putting your best foot forward, especially with those who need it the most. He even says, if I'm one of the best educators in the state, then I should be in a school that needs me. He is the youngest ever Teacher of the Year Award winner in Arkansas, and once appointed principal, he only had two months to hire and train a new batch of teachers. He's creating a system and a model to fully support teachers and make sure they are professionally developed every step of the way. Why aren't there more educators like him? He gets it. His school is about 60% Latino and 40% African-American, many of whom are recent immigrants. And we meet some of these kids as they're being interviewed, and I'm sorry, but if you can look at these children and tell me that they need to go back where they came from, then I'm gonna need to rip up your fake Christian ID and throw you headfirst into the holy baptismal waters because what kind of child of God are you? These young minds need knowledge, guidance, love, and safety. To deny them of that is the devil's work. Fight me on that. As one teacher says, they need to know that there is someone there that supports them and is kind of rooting for them. So many people give up on our students. If you would just push them a little more, love them a little more, and encourage them, motivate them, inspire them, they can and they will. Praise be, Tamika Jordan, praise be. In New York City, there are about 18,000 public schools, and although it's one of the most diverse cities in America, there is a lot of acute residential segregation. These schools have what's called school choice, where kids can apply to any school in New York City after sixth grade. But as one student mentions, at her school, only 272 get in out of 5,000 applicants, making it more competitive than Harvard. One school in Park Slope, Brooklyn, has historically been mainly African-American and Latino. Some years back, similar to the Little Rock Nine, they started integrating white students who are deemed the Park Slope 10. They were welcomed by their peers, and just from that, the reputation and applicant pool of the school started to change. Why is this even a thing? Why is having white students at your school suddenly making it more popular and more in demand? Why are we hearing teachers and parents talk about inclusive education being 21st century education and how by having white students in the classroom, they have more access to necessary funds? Like, what kind of world are we living in? And we all know teachers don't get paid much. Starting salaries are often below $40,000 a year, and some states have seen less than a 2% increase in teacher salaries in the past 20 years. Teachers are often buying their own supplies for the classroom and spending their own funds to do their job properly. It, it just makes my head spin. 
Teachers should get paid like lawyers. Their jobs are just as important, if not more, and at least they're not in the business of scamming people or charging $120 for a 10-minute phone call, but I digress. Now, there's so much more to learn and find out from this insightful film, but I wanted to give you a Cliff Notes version, and I'm going to leave out some spoilers just to ask that you watch it yourself. I'm also going to take the time to ask you, are you registered to vote? Please visit vote.gov and make sure you'll be able to fill out a ballot in November. Our future, our lives, our children, our society depend on this. We need you to vote like your life depends on it because at this point, it literally does. Thank you for listening to me this week. Till next week, remember, when you go out into the world, be kind and listen. Carry me home when the light in my eyes does fade. Carry me home when the shadow comes to take me away. Soul, carry me.